Hello and welcome to London Live. It's uh, Friday, March 15th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs for one final day. We have got a lot to get to on today's program and not a moment to waste. On today's show, we'll be talking to a psychologist about the fear of flying in the wake of Sunday's crash in Ethiopia. We'll be talking to an employment lawyer about harassment in the workplace following the release of the report on harassment at City Hall earlier this week. Uh, Those interviews have both happened before the uh, hour is out. Next hour, we'll talk about food affordability and food security. We'll talk about housing affordability. We'll talk about bus rapid transit. And we'll talk about an event later this month in London that will be held to help people with disabilities and how you get through a day. Up first, we have to talk about the senseless tragedy out of New Zealand. Stories like this are difficult. First off, because of the loss, 49 people have lost their lives. 48 people were injured. And this is something that must be described as a massacre, must be described as an act of terrorism. Second, this is difficult because the story is still developing. There is incomplete information, and it's important to be precise and correct with the information that goes out. As you read, as you listen to, and watch this story develop, keep that in mind. Be mindful about where you get your information. Third, with regards to this story in particular, there is a video spreading online that was shot and live-streamed by the shooter. Global News will not be broadcasting that video. We will not be putting it on any of our websites. And if you come across it, report it. Do not watch it. I struggle with stories like this one because, like many, I have friends who are Muslim. I can't imagine what last night would have been like trying to sleep, if that's possible. Or what it's like going to prayers today. Ali Chabar, who is a friend of mine, has been on uh, shows I've hosted a number of times over the years, uh, tweeted something earlier today that really uh, struck me. He uh, tweeted, and I quote, For a while now, before I enter the mosque on Friday, I consider the possibility that I won't leave, that my wife will lose a husband and my three kids will lose a dad. I always shake it off and go in and pray. Well, it's Friday today and shaking it off isn't proving easy. Hashtag New Zealand. I don't know what you say to a friend who is feeling that today, other than to say, I'm with you. I will stand shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm your friend. And I will do my absolute best to stem the rising tide of Islamophobia in this country. Here's what we know about this story. 49 people have been killed, 48 people have been injured in Christchurch, New Zealand, in what the Prime Minister is calling one of New Zealand's darkest days. Additionally, four people are in custody, one of whom has been charged. A man claiming to be the gunman reportedly videotaped the shooting and posted it as a live stream to his now-deleted Twitter account, along with a link to an apparent anti-immigrant manifesto. Police are urging people not to repost the live stream. Here is what Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had to say while speaking with the media earlier today. I have spoken this evening to the Mayor of Christchurch, and I intend uh, to speak this evening to the Imam. But I also want to send a message to those directly affected. In fact, I'm sure right now New Zealand would like me to share a message on their behalf too. Our thoughts and our prayers are with those who have been impacted today. Christchurch was the home of these victims. 
For many, this may not have been the place they were born. In fact, for many, New Zealand was their choice, the place they actively came to and committed themselves to, the place they were raising their families, where they were part of communities that they loved and who loved them. It was a place that many came to for its safety, a place where they were free to practice their culture and their religion. For those of you who are watching at home tonight and questioning how this could have happened here, we, New Zealand, we were not a target because we are a safe harbour for those who hate. We were not chosen for this act of violence because we condone racism, because we are an enclave for extremism. We were chosen for the very fact that we are none of these things, because we represent diversity, kindness, compassion, a home for those who share our values, refuge for those who need it. And those values, I can assure you, will not and cannot be shaken by this attack. London Mayor Ed Holder has released a statement on the shooting. That's, uh, this is the statement, and I quote, I am shocked and saddened by the news out of New Zealand this morning. On behalf of all Londoners, my thoughts and prayers are with the people of Christchurch who are now mourning the loss of their friends and family members. With a heavy heart, I add my voice to the many voices from around the world condemning this horrific act of terror. People everywhere should be able to gather for worship free of fear. Today, my thoughts also turn to our Muslim neighbors and friends in this community. I stand with you. All Londoners stand with you in this moment of great sorrow. Violence, hatred, and intolerance have no place here or anywhere. Let us live in a world where we embrace our neighbors and where we are grateful for the many ways our community is made rich by its diversity. At City Hall, our Canadian flag has been lowered to half-mast as we mourn the senseless losses and pay our respects. That again is a statement from London Mayor Ed Holder. There's a lot of video out there. I want to play you a few items. The first clip is courtesy of journalist Matthew McHugh. It's a video of a survivor of the shooting who spoke uh, but not wished to, uh, to be identified. I was thinking that he must run, must run out of bullets. You know? So what I did was basically waiting for that and praying to God, oh God, please you know, let this guy run out of bullets. And when it stopped, first time I went, but one guy was sitting out just beside a wall. And what he did was, he told me, no, no, no. And then I, I went back again where I was. And next thing, the guy came and shot this guy who uh, told me not to get out. That was a sad moment, and I know that guy. And he shot him straight in the chest. I also want to play an interview of a 66-year-old woman named Jill that she gave after the shooting as well. She, along with others, helped save the life of someone who was shot. I heard and saw what I thought were firecrackers, and I saw young fellas running down the street, and then all of a sudden it got quite violent, and I thought, no, that's not firecrackers, and they started falling, and one fell just to the left of my car, and one fell to the right. I stopped the car in shock and I, I leaned to try and avoid getting shot and apparently a bullet went sailing over my car and struck the one in the back. I opened up my doors or my driver's door and um, got out and the guy in the black Commodore or whatever it was come up and said you're right and I said yeah I'm good I haven't been shot and, and the poor lying on the verge had been shot in the back 
and we opened my passenger's door and my driver's door and we pulled him round behind and then opened up the back as well, give us some protection. And he had a first aid kit and he crouched and ran all the way back to get it. And he lifted up his shirt and he dressed it and I put the pressure on and then a nice Muslim guy come and give me some help as well because you have to put quite a bit of pressure on and I was, poor old hands were shaking that hard, I was scared I'd, you know, wouldn't be able to do a good job. And the worst thing was we couldn't get, we could hear the ambulances but they couldn't get to us. Finally, I want to play another clip of New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. I certainly that is the assumption that I would make at this stage. Um, we've seen from uh, one of the offenders um, that they have uh, publicised their ideology. Uh, I have no reason to assume anything other than that those others who have been arrested would subscribe to the same ideology, which I can only describe as extreme. What's your plan for visiting? I'm not in a position to, uh, to give away additional details on their, uh, on their citizenship at this stage, Barry. Anything else about the IEDs, um, what they were, how they were um, disarmed, and whether there's any risk that there could be further? You know, at this point, I think that's an opportunity to really acknowledge the work that the police are doing. You know, the apprehend, uh, apprehending of a um, uh, of a suspect in an extremely uh, volatile situation, uh, really putting themselves at risk on our behalves, and I want to acknowledge that. Uh, particularly, also disarming uh, uh, the explosives that were, as I understand, attached to the suspect cars. Uh, there were two of them. Um, they have been um, disarmed now, uh, but uh, obviously that was a, a high-risk situation. Gives us an indication that there was a degree of planning around what has happened today. Was there an intention for a suicide attack? I, I, ca I cannot speculate around what the intention was, but again, it was attached uh, to the suspect's, uh, suspect's vehicles. Being out there? No, not at this stage. So look, my, my message would be, you know, we should not be perpetuating, sharing, giving any oxygen uh, to this act of violence and the message that sat behind it. We should all be condemning, obviously, what has happened here today in uh, the peaceful nation of New Zealand. Uh, and what all of us can at least do is ensure that we do not share, spread uh, or uh, actively engage in that message of hate. So what do you do when something like this happens? The same thing we did two years ago when six worshippers were killed, 19 others were injured at a mosque in Quebec City. You recognize what happened, we call it what it is, which is an act of terror, and we try to make the world a better place. Islamophobia is a problem in this country, and it is not getting better. We will talk about that and what you can do about it when we return. We need a break. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs uh, once again. We are talking uh, to start today about the terror attack in uh, New Zealand last night, and I want to build off that and for the next little while focus on Islamophobia. It's on the rise in this country. We like to think sometimes I think we're different than other parts of the world, uh, but we are not. And when something horrific happens, I think there's a lot of people who want uh, to try and take something positive we can work towards. 
and ideally create a better world for all. Uh, to talk about this, we are joined by Sidra Ahmad. She is a writer, community-based researcher, and activist whose work focuses on gender-based violence and Islamophobia. She's also the founder of Rivers of Hope. Uh, their mission is to provide tools of uh, support uh, for survivors of all forms of Islamophobic uh, violence. Uh, Sidra, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Devin. Uh, Islamophobia is something I have never experienced. Maybe just to start, can you talk a little bit about how pervasive it is and how destructive it can be? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Islamophobia is uh, something that can range from horrific attacks like we just saw happened in New Zealand all the way down to everyday comments and um, aggressions that happen in public space. So it, it can look like any range of things from, you know, just being stared at when you walk into the, onto a bus or into a room if you're wearing a headscarf or a face covering, uh, being excluded from, um, you know, activities in classrooms or from friend groups, just being treated like you're other, you don't belong, you're not human. So it can be those subtle things, and then it can escalate up to being yelled at in the street, you know, go back to where you came from, uh, being um, targeted online with, you know, really hateful comments. And then, you know, what I've seen through research I've done is that a lot of, you know, Muslims, particularly Muslim women, uh, talk about not only being yelled at in the streets, but, you know, being spit at or people trying to hit them or hit them with their cars. So that's what Islamophobia can look like. You know, everything from from subtle um, ways that you're treated differently um, to to horrible acts of violence. And for me, you know, your, your listeners can um, hear my voice. And, you know, I was born in Canada and I uh, grew up speaking English, so I don't have an accent. So a lot of the time when I'm speaking to people on the phone, they don't know that I'm Muslim or visibly Muslim, right? So I've even noticed in my own daily life um, that sometimes people who meet me on the phone for the first time will kind of treat me a certain way. And then when I meet them in person and they see I have a head covering, a head covering, you kind of, I, I feel the difference, right? And it's so, um, I guess interesting isn't the right word, but it really strikes me how when people look Muslim or are perceived as Muslim, you can be treated differently or even targeted for violence. So that kind of captures what it's like in a nutshell, I hope. That's an interesting uh, point. The subtle parts are what, you know, kind of jump out to me. I mean, the, the horrific, uh, violent parts are something I think are easier for people to wrap their head around and say, okay, well, yeah. that, that's clearly wrong. But it's some of the subtle things that, you know, in our daily lives when people are looking at, well, how do we make this better, uh, make, yeah. make this a better world, that the subtle parts are things that, you know, you don't, because sometimes people, people are adverse to conflict. They don't want to, they're, they're, they get nervous about talking to friends if something, if they say something, they don't want to, mm -hmm. they want to start a fight. But some of those subtle things are little areas where here and there we can just, you know, speak up and say a little thing and just try to be better human beings. Yeah, I think that's really important in those everyday interactions, because what's happened now is that Islamophobia has become normalized. And the more normal and socially acceptable it is to, you know, make comments about Muslims, say that, you know, they're all terrorists, they don't belong here, you know, uh, spreading different conspiracy theories about Muslims, like the more common that becomes and the more socially acceptable that becomes, I truly believe that creates an environment where then it leads to violence becoming more acceptable. It's almost like a, a snowball effect or a slippery slope. So 
So for me, I think it's really important what you suggest that people kind of speak up when even when smaller things are happening or they hear jokes or comments that aren't okay because at least that sends the message out there that, you know what, this isn't normal. It's not okay. You know, because I think that's what's scaring a lot of Muslims in the country. It's like, is this the new normal? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because we hear um, or we see often, you know, even different Canadian politicians like being photographed with people who are part of white supremacist groups who have spoken out in really scary ways about Muslims. And then you see mainstream politicians kind of having photo ops with them and kind of blurring the lines between, okay, is this fringe or is it mainstream now? And people are really scared, like, that it's becoming just acceptable, you know, to target Muslims is acceptable, to say hateful things about Muslims is acceptable. And then you can see if people have, you know, violent inclinations, they will take that next step to say, well, you know what, if I attack this group, it's a good thing. You know, if I if I hurt Muslims, I'm helping the country. Like, people really are starting to believe these things, and it's it's terrifying. Um, but the other thing I would suggest that people do, not just about speaking up if you hear jokes or um, or comments that are harmful or hateful, either online or in person, but really to, I know it sounds cliche, but honestly, educate yourself because there's so much misinformation out there. Um, you know, we know like research has shown if there's a terror attack that's um, carried out by someone who's from a Muslim background, it receives five times the coverage as other uh, attacks. So there's all this stuff in the media that's leading people to think certain things. And what I would really encourage people to do is to reach out and get to know your Muslim neighbors. You know, a lot of people who have these ideas, they don't have Muslim friends or have interacted with Muslims in in kind of a deep way. And I really believe that's a very big antidote to what's happening right now is to host, you know, community discussions, get to know people, build those bridges, because right now we're all being separated and, you know, um, all these really scary messages are being um, shared about a group. And if you don't even know any, anyone from that group, you might be inclined to believe it. But I guarantee that if you build relationships and get to know your Muslim neighbors, that's going to really help. It, it'll really help you then speak up if you hear people saying things, because it won't just be an abstract issue like, oh, that's wrong. You know, it's like, no, they're saying this about my friend Sidra, like who you're hearing right now, or Muhammad, who, I've, who I met, you know, in my community, things like that. So I really hope that can be something that we all work hard to do. Um, you know, instead of just sitting at home in our, you know, at our individual computers, right, like connecting mm -hmm. with each other. Yeah. It, it's a good point just because, uh, you know, you mentioned something in, you, you wrote for T TVO a couple months ago mm -hmm. on the two-year anniversary of uh, the, the attack at the Quebec uh, City Mosque. And one of the items you mentioned near the end was, you know, go to rallies and vigils as something people can do, which I think is yeah. important, but you don't have to wait for that to get to know, you know, Muslim yeah. members of your community. Yes, 100%. And, you know, it, it might be awkward at first, or there might even be kind of feelings of distrust or, you know, like, okay, what's this about? But really, I would encourage to you to do that. And, you know, and people have been doing that. You know, I know um, a lot of people from the Jewish uh, community um, have done this beautiful activity called, like, forming a ring of peace. Um, so, like, volunteer to go to mosques after things like this happen and, like, physically stand in a circle around the mosque to say, you know what, we're here with you, we stand with you. And I know um, uh, many Muslims who participated in kind of the um, offering the same thing um, 
with synagogues after there was a horrible shooting at a synagogue um, in the United States. So, I mean, it, but it doesn't have to be um, an activist activity like that. Really building meaningful relationships with your neighbors and community members, uh, showing up to events that they might be organizing, uh, whether it be on like Muslim um, celebrations like Eid, you could show up then. Just finding creative ways to make those connections and just to get back to seeing each other as humans. You know, um, I think that that would be really huge. And yeah, and I mentioned in that article on TVO that, um, you know, I had I was sharing a meal with one of my closest friends who happens to be Jewish. And and there she shared about an experience she went through um, with um, anti-Semitism on the bus. And, you know, just being able to be there for people in a one on one conversation way is really important. Because I definitely know a lot of the Muslims I know today are hurting, right? And there's this question of, does anyone care? Is anyone there? It's very isolating. So if you have any Muslim friends or acquaintances, just to reach out and say, hey, like, you know what? Do you want to share a meal together? Do you want to, you know, go out for a walk today? Little things like that go a long way, you know. And I would encourage everyone listening to try and do that today, you know. Um, Do something kind, Um yeah. Most definitely. Uh, Sidra, I certainly appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. You as well. All right. That Thank is you. Uh, Sidra Ahmad, a writer, community-based researcher, and activist whose work, as I said, focuses on gender-based violence and Islamophobia. She's also a founder of Rivers of Hope. If you Google them on uh, on Google, uh, you can get up some information on some of the great work they're doing there. We need to stop for news. We come back more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in with you. I want to talk about the Ethiopian plane crash story, but in a different way we've discussed it uh, so far. Uh, this focus so far has been on, and rightly so, what happened, whether the planes should have been grounded earlier, uh, the victims themselves. I'd now like to talk about the people who have a fear of flying and what incidents like this can do to people who have that fear. Dr. Ian Shulman is a psychologist who specializes in helping people deal with the fear of flying. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. No problem. I'm I'm intrigued by uh, a lot of different things with this uh, story out of Ethiopia and the uh, uh, the fatal crash. Uh, in terms of people who would have a fear of flying, do you hear from more people following events like what happened on Sunday? Uh, you know, fear of flying is something that's very easy for people to avoid. I mean, not the fear of flying; they they just have that naturally. But mm-hmm. but the Having to fly is something that's very easy for them to avoid. So the people who call me because they want to get some treatment are a very select group. Um, they're the ones who, who either are just so sick and tired of avoiding or something outside of them is pushing them to fly, like a, a work commitment or family promises or something. So we don't necessarily get a lot more calls. Um, when something big happens in the world around airplanes. But what does happen, I think, is that it just reinforces for those scared people that, oh, you see, you see, flying is really dangerous. I'm really glad I don't fly. What's the impact of not only a crash like what happened on Sunday, but the knowledge that this is a, a popular plane and it's the same model that was involved in another fatal crash uh, not even a year ago? Yeah, I, like I said, I think it just really reinforces people's fears. Now, one of the things that happens um, in a human body, and one of the reasons that we've been so successful 
in in terms of uh, you know beating nature all the time, is that we really focus in on threats because we are soft and squishy for the most part. So we have to be highly attuned to anything that might be threatening. So what can happen is we can get very sort of narrow narrow eyes or narrow vision, and we only start paying attention to the things that reinforce what we already believe. So if you're afraid of flying and you believe that it's dangerous and then you see a news report that says, oh, you know, two uh, different types of aircraft or two of the same type of aircraft went down within six months of each other, then you'll probably pay a lot of attention to that. And you probably won't pay as much attention to the fact that there are lots and lots of other flights that go on just fine and they take off without incident and they land without incident and the hundreds of thousands or millions of people who board those aircraft get off at the other end, and they're just fine. You know, I just was driving the other day, and I happened to look out my car window, and in one small square of space, I saw four overlapping, you know, the trails, the contrails, the the vapor trails of, of four aircraft, just in that one small bit of space. So if that's what I saw in my location here, you can imagine how many hundreds of thousands of flights there are around the world every day, and most of them are uneventful. They're fine. But we how, don't pay attention to that stuff. How do people, just kind of building on that, how do people describe their their fear of flying? Because I've read, you know, there's there's some people who they'll say, like, they know it's safe, but kind of the problem is they just have a hard time accepting it or that it's just even, it's just, they know it's okay, but there's still that, that fear persists. So they know it's safe, but we've got, you know, many people talk about the difference between the head and the heart, right? I know I should be doing something, but I just don't feel like it, right? So when we know something, like flying is really the safest way to travel, it it sits in sharp contrast to the fact that your body can be giving you a much different signal, a signal that, that the same type of signal that goes off when you're legitimately scared and when there's a legitimate danger. So it's kind of hard to reconcile those two. And oftentimes people will uh, put more value on what their body's telling them than on what, they're, what they know to be true because we can get tricked, we can get fooled, we can, we can uh, you know, do things that we know are completely safe, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you know, that, that thing you've used a thousand times before fails and you get injured. So, it, you're, you know, us human bodies, or uh, those of us with human bodies, we, uh, we have survived as long as we have because our body's motto is better to be safe than sorry. So we tend to pay a lot of attention to that physical and emotional arousal, and we can use that to discount even the rational stuff that we know to be true. You know, I, I think does that, does that make sense. It, it does, and and it kind of leads Perfect. me to a question. Like, I, I think our, our the way our mind works and our fears is interesting because I I'm gonna I'm gonna imagine that people don't develop fears of flying based on there being turbulent. Maybe some people do, but you know, it's there, anything good, anything could go wrong anywhere. I could be crossing the street, something could ha- bad could happen. I could get onto the elevator, something bad could happen. I could drive, something bad could happen. I could take a plane, something. So I'm just curious right. how how all these different types of fears develop, and in some cases it's a fear of flying. For other people, yeah. maybe it's a fear of spiders or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Well, you know what? In, in most of life, we have lots of options. You know, if you are in an elevator and something strange or unexpected happens, you can push the next button down and get off at the very next floor and then use the stairs. You have that sense of 
agency, which means I can do something about this, right? If you're driving on uh, if you're driving on a highway or something and you get scared or some some person veers into your lane or it's just a dangerous situation, you can always slow down or change your driving or even get off the highway. So it gives us that sense of agency. I can do something. Now, flying is different because most of us don't have access to our own aircraft. Most of us um, are taking big commercial aircraft when we fly. And so we, we have, you know, we're, we're just sort of cattle in a way. I mean, I hate to sound nasty about the airlines, but it, they're big buses, right? So mm-hmm. we're just one small person in this big organization. And getting on a plane takes us out of our comfort zone. And it also takes away that appearance of having agency, the appearance of having something that you can do if you were to feel afraid. Like, if you feel afraid on a plane or if the ride is kind of bumpy or uncomfortable, you can't get off. You can't open the doors. You can't, sometimes you can't leave your seat. You can't go to the bathroom. Um, there's a lot of things you can't do. And I think that really uh, activates people's fears because it, it, it causes them to feel like they no longer have control. And, and like you were suggesting, we rarely ever have full control over anything. I mean, it's like you said, we could, we could be doing something that we've done a million times before, and then some other thing happens outside of us, and we get burned or we get hurt. But we like to, have, we like to think that we're in control. And when we fly, we get out of that zone where we think we have that control, and that makes people kind of scared. If people, what if? If people have um, this fear, what can they do to address it? I'm, obviously, they could talk to someone like you, but what, what steps could people take? For sure. Um, There are lots of things that people can do to address the fear. One is to learn to recognize their own stuff, okay? And by that, I mean it's so easy for us to get caught up in our own heads and then lose sight of the fact that we're just caught up in our own heads. I mean, anybody who's ever lay awake at night worrying about something that was going to happen the next day is they're caught up in their head, right? Because in that moment, they're actually just lying in bed and the thing for the next day hasn't happened yet. So learning how to really tune in to yourself and pay attention and know when you're worrying. Watch your body. You know, when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling tight and tense, when you're sweaty, your heart rate's going up, notice that stuff. And then stop for a sec and take a look around. Like sober second thought, you know, take a look around and say, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm sitting in my kitchen, I'm drinking a coffee, everything is fine, and I'm sitting here worrying about a flight that I might be taking next week. And then you can ask yourself, is this something I really want to be doing right now, or would I rather be doing something else? So in a broader context, people might talk about that as sort of mindfulness, like mindfulness meditation, which is really just, you know, it's not zoning out, it's, it's tuning in and really noticing what's going on so that you can make the conscious choice of saying, do I want to keep getting caught up in my thoughts and fears, or do I want to stop and really deal with reality here? Another thing you can do is you can work to calm your body. So either by breathing calmly or doing some kind of stretching or yoga or anything to just calm your body down. Because when we get hyper-aroused, especially when we get scared, our thinking ability, or rather our ability to think clearly, shuts off. Because thinking is a really slow process, so we have to be able to react without the encumbrance of slow and cumbersome thinking. 
So calming the body helps to um, bring that thinking ability back online, and then you can start to take a more a more uh, rational look at what you're afraid of and whether it's worth being afraid of. Um, you know, for example, people who work in the airline industry, they have whole careers, and they go up in the air and they come down every day and most of, you know, pretty much all the time, and then they go home to their spouses and their families. And if, you know, they, you can't, like the odds of, of every person in the airline industry being a daredevil or having a death wish is very, very slim. So they're probably normal people just doing a job. Um, we can, yeah, sorry. No, that's, that, that's good advice. I, I'd, I'd like to continue on. We're, just, we're running short on time here. But sure. um, uh, I, it was something I thought of when uh, I saw this story, and uh, I certainly appreciate uh, having the chance to talk to you about it today. And if there are people out there who do have a fear of flying, it uh, uh, there are ways to address it, as you were just kind of outlining there. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. And we also have a, a fear of flying program that we run a few times a year here in Oakville. Um, you, they, people can find us at afraidtofly.ca, and it's called the Non-Flyer Program. It's a weekend workshop where we help people overcome the fear and actually take them flying as well so they can see that they can do it. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Devin. That's Dr. Ian Shulman, a psychologist who specializes in helping people deal with a fear of flying. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock. Uh, Earlier this week, a report on workplace harassment in London City Hall was released. The report was done by Toronto-based law firm Ruben Tomlinson. They surveyed 3,800 current and former city employees, 779 of whom responded. Among those who responded, nearly half indicated they had experienced harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, and or reprisal in the workplace. The report makes eight recommendations, including hiring a city ombudsman. Mayor Ed Holder has said all eight will be adopted. The report also said the situation within work areas has improved under current leadership. Howard Levitt is one of Canada's leading employment and labor lawyers. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about harassment and and transparency, and and what are some of the best ways uh, to address harassment in the workplace and deal with it in a transparent manner, regardless of whether you're talking about a city hall or a private business? Well, first of all, have policies. Make sure everyone understands and make sure everyone signs off and make sure everybody um, is trained and educated in them and make sure you fire people for abusing them. Because if you don't, then, of course, you've condoned it and you have no policy at all. If you don't or if you haven't updated them in time, then you get into a tricky position where you conceivably have a harassment problem and you're now asking people who um, may have been harassed to come forward in a in a, in a situation where they don't feel comfortable because there could be reprisal. How do you, how do you break out of that? Well, you educate people on your policies and update them. Look, harassment's illegal whether you have a policy or not. But if you have a policy, then it's harder for people to say they didn't know, they didn't understand, and it certainly sends a message to the employees or the victims that they are going to be protected. There is a grievance procedure. There is a, a line of authority, and harassers will be punished, not the people exposing the harassment. And then do it. 
and then people will realize you do do it, and they won't be apprehensive or nervous about coming forward because you've shown that you're serious about your policy. The uh, City of London hired an outside party to do a review for them. Even then, they had difficulty getting people to respond to the survey. 80% did not. When you're dealing with harassment, how do you get employees to have trust uh, in this system uh, if, if it's been broken and that's why you're here in the first place? Well, look, sometimes these studies are sometimes relatively bogus themselves, and people do it to, to virtue signal, not because they're serious about it. So because they had a study and because people weren't interested, it, it suggests that they have a lack of confidence in their employer, lots of lack of confidence in the company conducting the study, and that becomes a problem. But you sometimes have to lead from the top and actually make the changes study or no study, because you don't need studies to know what her anti-harassment mechanisms are. They're pretty, you can almost get them on the internet these days, but most HR departments know how to access them, and council can prepare them for them if they have any confusion. But I'm not sure that a study means much at all, especially if it's a company that has empty slogans, and when they do a study, people nod and yawn and look in the other direction, don't take it seriously. Because they haven't been obviously living, walking the walk before that. Do you find more companies, managers, uh, whatnot are uh, aware of uh, this and maybe the need to update, or has has this? Because we've we've seen it in different realms, but I'm I'm curious whether or not uh, a lot of private businesses or, or, or I guess maybe governments are maybe a bit more aware of if they haven't been updating their policies, they should probably be getting on that. Well, you're listening. Your people listening to your show today are going to hear that, but they have probably heard it before because it's been all over the news for a long time now. We've had a lot of high-profile cases, of course, in the sexual arena. We've had, since Weinstein in particular, and even before, since John Gomeshi, before that, there's been a lot of public awareness of harassment issues, mostly sexual, but increasingly non-sexual as well. Do you... Um do you think that's going to continue, or are we kind of coming to a reckoning here where it, uh, hopefully we have policies that, take pl- uh, that, are, that are better equipped to deal with some of this, or does this continue to grow as there becomes more, uh, more prominence, more stories about all of this? Well, I think there's two. You've got to bifurcate the sexual from the non-sexual. I think in the sexual arena, there's already been a sea change. People already get it. People already understand that there's real legal issues with harassment, and people have changed fundamentally for the mores and the jokes and the casual behavior of even two years ago, maybe even one year ago. That's already changed. I think that's probably become permanently part of our consciousness in this country and in the States. In the non-sexual area, there's a problem because it's pretty diffuse, and the question is, what is harassment? And everybody has seems to have a different definition. I mean, there is a legal definition of harassment. I, don't get me wrong, but People have a different view of what harassment is, and if anybody does anything that irritates someone else, the other person views it as harassment. It doesn't make it harassment. So what I'm finding in my law practice is increasingly we're getting people making complaints of harassment that isn't harassment at all. It's just people with different sensitivities to different things, but not something that's objectively harassing. Or performance management is viewed as harassment when it isn't. It's uh, quite interesting. Howard, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you. Good talking. That's Howard Levitt, one of Canada's leading employment and labour lawyers. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
We have just enough time to set up the second hour of the program. We'll be talking about uh, the affordability of food. We'll be talking about the affordability of homes. And we'll be talking about the affordability of transit and a whole lot more. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. New report out uh, suggests more than half of Canadians cannot easily follow Canada's new official food guide. Researchers at Dalhousie University and the University of Guelph found more than 52% of consumers surveyed said they face barriers in adopting the recommendations of the food guide. More than 26% of people found affordability a major barrier, and others cited taste preferences, lack of free time, and dietary restrictions. Sylvain Charlebois, lead author of the report, said the results show a disconnect between Health Canada's guide and the reality of Canadians' lives. To talk about this, we are joined by Sylvain Charlebois. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. I thought the report was quite interesting. When you first saw the food guide and saw how uh, vegetable and fruit focused it was, was this concern something that jumped out to you or what made you want to look into this? Well, when when the food guy was released in January, there were actually a lot of questions Canadians were asking for 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 one, uh, are Canadians going to follow the food guide, and secondly, can we afford it? So we basically uh, looked into those uh, matters uh, over the last couple of months. What did you find? Well, so on on the one side, in terms of awareness, I think people are are mostly aware of, of the, the fact that there's a new food guide in Canada. The challenge, though, is that uh, it's not seen as credible or influential. In fact, when we ask Canadians uh, to rank uh, how important the food guide is, the food, the food guide actually ranks six overall uh, after families, uh, friends, uh, general research, social media, cookbooks, celebrities, even celebrities actually come before the food guide. So you can see that really there's a bit of a disconnect between uh, our daily lives and, and the food guide. And that's one thing. The other thing, of course, we wanted to really we wanted to see exactly whether or not um, the food guide is uh, is affordable, and it is actually. So good news for uh, for your listeners: a dollar ninety eight. So a family of four will save a dollar ninety eight cents a day. Uh, it follows uh, the food guide, the new one versus the old one. Here's the kicker, though. You can't go out. You need to cook all your meals, and uh, you actually uh, have to waste nothing. And with fruits and vegetables, that's always difficult. So over the long term, we, are, we, we do see the new food guide becoming more expensive, but for now, you'll save some money. It's interesting uh, the the aspect of uh, where it ranks in terms of what people trust, and I, I, I it, it sounds maybe weird, but I can understand how celebrities uh, might uh, fit into uh, a, a more trustworthy uh, role. Where just uh, with social media these days, we feel we have a closer connection to people, and when we listen to a friend that recommends a dish or a family that recommends something, we you know there's a, there's a bit of weight behind that recommendation. Oh, absolutely. So obviously there's a bit of a 
an issue there. Uh, and, and, and influences come from all over the place. Uh, I think the bottom line, what we're really seeing with the new study is that there is there are some concerns around uh, around uh, how credible and influential the guide is. Uh, I, and, and frankly, I think a lot of Canadians are feel detached from from uh, from uh, from the food guide itself. Uh, they see it as uh, per, per, perhaps a bit out of touch. Uh, for a couple of reasons, one, they actually do see it as on the, uh, as not being affordable. Secondly, you need to cook, and a lot of people feel they don't have the time. And and thirdly, a lot of people just don't see how the food guide fits with their daily lives in terms of the kinds of food that the food guide suggests. Would that have been the case regardless of what the food guide said, or is that more uh, a reflection of this current food food guide? I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, we haven't seen a new food guide in 12 years. Uh, Health Canada basically uh, managed the release of the new food guide as if they were uh, going to be revealing the location of Cleopatra's tomb. It's not that big either. It's just a food guide. And so every five years, I think it would be important to to um, to review the food guide, so to, so so we make sure that Canadians actually keep keep that guide at top of mind. Um, the food guide is the second most downloaded document off the government of Canada's website, so it is it is read. I mean, a lot of people actually do look at it, but it doesn't really make much of a difference in terms of what we eat, though. You mentioned uh, the, the concerns about affordability uh, aren't as great now, but you see those rising. What's uh, some of the concern about the affordability rising with this? Uh, so in terms of affordability, so for now, you'll save money. But over time, what well, the problem we see is is around fruits and vegetables, that the production is not there. And so we're we're vulnerable, we're highly vulnerable to monetary fluctuations, uh, climate change uh, uh, impacting uh, areas where fruits and vegetables are grown around the world. So, obviously, these are things we're going to need to address. And it's not necessarily Health Canada's mandate to do so, uh, but in the end, of course, uh, we need to think about what we grow in Canada, how we can support our nutritional aspirations. Affordability is a big part of it, and uh, you know I did some interviews talking about the food guide when it came out. Affordability didn't really come up at the time, but it probably should have. <laughs> the word budget appears once uh, in the 59 pages that was released by Health Canada. Food security is mentioned once, um, and uh, and so uh, and of course money spending doesn't come up. Other than when they actually talk about processed foods, it does, it's not really mentioned. So that's why we felt it was important to actually have that conversation with Canadians. The, uh, the affordability part almost reminds me of a couple of years ago when there was a big push behind it. It's still around today about organic food products, uh, about how they're healthier, they're better and whatnot. But they're also more expensive. And so it's not the first time you know, uh, that we've bumped up against this type of problem. No, absolutely. So clearly, a, a, a huge issue for for Canadians, and um, and I think it's important to lead healthy lives uh, and increase our quality of life. And uh, the Canada's Food Guide certainly has a role to play. But in the end, though, it has to be real, and it has to be somewhat connected with uh, what we do every single day. 
We're seeing more uh, vegans, more vegetarians in this country. Could that yeah. also uh, impact the number of, uh, I guess, vegetables that are eaten, but also, like, you know, affordability and price? Oh, absolutely. Of course, uh, there, there is a trend. I, I'm not sure. So the number of vegans is increasing, but not, not as, as much as most people think. It's, it's increasing by a few percentages a year. Uh, however, there are many flexitarians out there, people that are actually constantly reducing the amount of meat they consume, and they're, and they're looking elsewhere. And so that movement, of course, is is changing things in the industry. The industry is adapting. You just walk into a grocery store, uh, and uh, it's very easy now to actually find any sort of plant-based uh, products uh, in, in that store. So uh, the, 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 clearly there's an effort being done now. And the interesting thing about uh, vegans and vegetarians, I don't have numbers in front of me right now, but it seems like some of those increases, as small or large or as, or as they may be, they're in specific demos. It's not like a widespread uh, thing across, you know, Canadians in general. There's specific demos of people that are more apt to that kind of a thing, which uh, for people do it for various reasons. But again, one reason could be, you know, how affordable some of this stuff is. Yeah, absolutely, clearly. So uh, this is something that is uh, is important to keep in mind uh, as as we move forward. Uh, just finally, uh, you mentioned food security. How uh, concerned should we be about uh, food security? We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs for one final day. Mike will be back uh, next week. He's in uh, Sault Ste. Marie tonight with the Knights. The Knights play in the Sioux tonight and in Saginaw tomorrow night. And then the playoffs start. So uh, the end of the regular season, but in many cases, the start of the real season. I want to uh, turn our attention to uh, bus rapid transit. We spent a full hour on it yesterday, so we're not going to do that again today. But I did want to revisit it with uh, Ward 14 Councillor Steve Hillier, a new member to council, and someone who has been quite outspoken on this in terms of just what he would like to see on the transit file. Now that the uh, list of uh, projects has been released, what are his thoughts as we head into next week's public participation meeting? To talk about all of this, we are joined by Ward 14 Councillor Steve Hillier. Thanks for your time today. Well, thank you very much. I always love when you call. <laughs> well, I, I always love when you pick up, because uh, especially on, <laughs> on topics like this, because it was obviously a big uh, issue during the uh, municipal campaign. Not the only big issue, but one of the big issues. Um, this month is proving to be a, a big month for this issue. We had a couple of days ago, the, uh, the city released this list of 19 transit options uh, for federal and provincial funding. Um, I'm curious uh, your thoughts on that list, and, and specifically because I know you were posting on social media about this, um, the, the decision to take the BRT plan and just parse it up into five different portions. Well, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, or your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but did the mayor not task staff to breaking this project down its component parts so council could actually see the cost of those things. Because when I look at the transit plan that we've been given, the pieces, there is no breakup of it. It's, you know, one through five, just the different legs put back in front of us again and say, decide. Say, That's not a decision. That's just the exact same thing we all said no to, and it's in front of us again. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not speaking for City Hall. They do have the injury. What you know? What no. the what the North Lake costs and West and South and Downtown. And, but I'm guessing from your answer, you want more detail than just that. Well, we would like to have seen how much uh, widening Wellington Road would have cost. We would like to see how much the transit lane would cost, possibly an HOV lane, uh, cent- center aisle versus outside uh, versus curbside. It would have been nice to see the breakouts of what these cost, because I'm assuming if there's a business plan, all of these potential projects all have this costed out already. So when we look at, you know, what what London wants uh, for rapid transit and BRT, have we, I mean, there was a maybe an attempt at a discussion earlier this year, and it was like, well, let's wait on until a little bit later on, and, to, and that time's now arrived. But it seems as though, for all the talk during the election of BRT, now that we're here, it's kind of the same thing as before. It's just instead of one big uh, plan, it's five little plans that could all fit together, theoretically. Could all fit together, theoretically. Good choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious, like, well, like is, is, do, or do we want other options than voting it as one or as five pieces, like, because from what I took from the election was people were hoping for maybe something drastically different than what's been discussed the past four years. That's what I got. I got from it as well. So uh, hitting all the, hitting all those doors in Ward 14, it was a resounding no. They didn't want it, and if they did want a transit system, they wanted a transit system that was going to the industrial, uh, serv- servicing the outlying parts of London, servicing Londoners that live here year round. So, so what happens now? I mean, we've got this uh, the sixty day deadline that arrives at the end of the month, and we've got uh, some concern from some of your colleagues that if we don't make a decision now, we're going to lose uh, this money and this funding, and that seems to be uh, driving the decision making process now. Well, so if we go forward and go with something that isn't going to work or hasn't been costed out. How much will it cost us in the long run? Making a bad decision doesn't make it the right decision. In terms, of, like, in terms of these projects, would you want to vote on them, or would you prefer just like uh, take a step back and say, "Well, maybe we need to just completely just redraw what we want to do here." I'm going to have to talk with a few members of staff first because I want to see the direction they're heading. Maybe they've coming. I'm hoping they're coming out with some more information on those top five, some breakouts of it, but I don't know yet. And to comment without talking to them, you know, <laughs> I don't want to hang anybody out there because it's not fair. But sure. I also want more information. Fair enough. I'm just. I'm just. It's. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm. 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 I'm intrigued by some of the response I've heard from um, some of your colleagues, but also you know opponents and proponents of this. It seems as though there's um, a lot of distaste towards uh, parsing this down to five components. I don't. Uh, I imagine, um, and staff has certainly been saying uh, that you know that this is something that's that's a good thing. But I'm 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 hearing from a lot of people they're a little. little um, maybe annoyed. I, I don't know how to properly characterize, and I don't want to put pe- words in people's mouths. Uh, but I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of um, support for moving from the BRT plan as it was discussed during the election to now with the five different components. Agreed. <laughs> I would have to agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't see the support. And talking to a few of my fellow counselors, they don't see it either. And they're and they're and they're e- and like my email, their emails are full. 
And people are telling me to keep fighting the good fight because they, they were against it. And I, didn't get, I got elected by the citizens of Ward 14 to help them and all of London. And I don't see this helping London because, for one, I don't see it being completely costed out. So we'd like to know the final costs on some of these things. And if this is broken up and we can see it, well, then you can do the math. It's not hard to do the math on these things. You mentioned um, uh, Ward 14 in industrial areas. Uh, from yep. what you were hearing during the, during the campaign, if whatever we do uh, with regardless of the transit plan, if there's not some sort of connection to the industrial plan, is it, is it safe to say it's hard for you to support that, at least for the Ward 14 leg of it all? Well, if you look out of my area, we have Summerside. The bus service stops at 7.30 at night. We don't, we're not providing active service to the industrial areas, which we should be doing from the get-go. Gretzky said, you go to where the puck is going to be, not to where it is. And we need to provide this service proactively to attract proper industry, to give the LEDC, to give other businesses, other corporations a chance to come to our city and see what a wonderful center we have. But how can it be a wonderful center if they can't get employees? We have to be forward-thinking on this. Aside from the costing of it all, what do you think has been missing from this whole conversation about uh, what London should be doing looking forward for transit? Communication. Between all levels. We should, we, when the 60-day timeline was called, we should have been having meetings every other day. How many meetings have there been since that 60 days were called? What have we had? Three? Two? I'll be fair, we've had so many meetings with so many different things lately. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, I believe uh, it's three. That's, I mean, that's, I think that's interesting that we got the, one of the, because one of the big issues of the previous uh, council, as I'm sure you're aware, was communication, uh, mostly with, between, you know, the, you know, city hall to the public, but maybe, it sounds like maybe communication within um, city hall has been an issue over the past couple of uh, weeks as well on this issue. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if that might be falling to us, the councillors, for reflecting the, the wishes of their constituents onto City Hall staff, and I'm wondering if that hasn't been uh, given appropriately. It should be an interesting um, meeting next week, the, the public participation meeting. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to wear my cup. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I don't know how that's going to go, because um, based on some of the reaction I've seen, uh, from people, it seems as though uh, the I, I can understand, uh, you know, because because here's one of the questions people have been asking me, uh, is cause, and this is kind of a long question, but people have been asking me. So if if they're if city hall's breaking it into the five points, does that mean BRT's dead or not? And I, one of the answers I say is, well, I don't know uh, how. Well liked, the North Leg was liked, and if that could have doomed the entire project if it was kept together, but I don't know breaking it apart if it like if the BRT plan is still the BRT plan if it's got half of it or two fifths or three fifths or whatever the case might be. So, looking ahead to the public participation meeting, um, I think it could be quite the meeting just because I, I think people have so many different versions of what BRT is or is not in their heads that um, I think we're, we're starting to see some of that now in terms of uh, getting to the decision-making process of, well, what did people mean when they said, I'm against BRT or I'm for BRT or I'm for this or that or against this or that? I think the acronym BRT is turning into a rallying cry for people that are either on one side of the issue or on the other side of the issue. I think London knows that its council wants a better transit system. 
It's just how do we get there and get there through social media and all the online trolls and actually get to the heart of what we need and make it work. I mean, I, I, lo- I look at the North Leg and go, okay, I, I'm all in favor of sending buses to uh, tra- transit to Western. They need it, but not through the main gates and not through that side. Why are we not coming up Western Road? If you look at, if you're going to Western or you're going to that end of the city, to the hospital, whatever, all the employment and the school part is all on the other side of the bridge at Western. The front half is student residences. So why are buses going that route? I have to agree with Phil Squire on that one. I would prefer to see him going down Warncliffe Western Road. You have, you have no rail line, and no impediment. Once they improve that intersection at Oxford and uh, Warncliffe there. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I, I, I wonder too, because Phil mentioned that uh, on the program, about whether or not, um, since it's, we're still in the, you know, the theory stage and Western hasn't even said uh, that they would approve uh, BRT going through the campus, I mean, theoretically, that Western Warncliffe uh, options should should be on the table, and so if we're breaking it apart, uh, why not consider mm. other potential legs? Um, exactly. Uh, you mentioned, also mentioned something, something interesting about just BRT itself, and I, I wonder if we, it, it needs a name change just because uh, it's just when you yeah. when you mention it, mention it, you know, eyes roll or or you know, people yeah. scoff. Everybody and, gets their back. Everybody gets their back up. It should just be London's transit, London's transit plan or transit initiative or something, uh, or enhanced transit. We're trying to get it built, but it's not going to be built the way everyone wants. There's no way to make everyone happy. It's just physically not possible. It'll be uh, interesting to watch. Uh, Steve, I certainly <laughs> appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You have yourself an amazing day, and go Knights, go. That is Ward 14 Councillor Steve Hillier. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. I want to uh, look ahead in time a little bit to something that's going to be happening near the end of the month, March 29th to be exact. On March 29th, uh, March Dimes of uh, Canada will be holding an event here in the city, and it's uh, opening doors for accessibility. It's going to be a uh, free event held uh, here in London at the Best Western Lamplighter Inn and Conference Centre. And they're going to be talking about how to help uh, get by uh, if you have a disability. It's more of a physical disability than uh, maybe other kinds of disabilities, but there are some commonalities with it all. Uh, But it's, I think, a really important event if uh, maybe uh, you you, uh, have just had surgery, there's been an event, something has happened, and you're wondering about, well, now how do I continue on with my life? Or you're wondering, how do I help a loved one who now has a disability and might need some help getting through the day? Uh, March of Dimes is doing some great work on this. Uh, Last year alone, they supported 129,000 Canadians with disabilities and logged nearly 4 million service hours. So March of Dimes will be holding this event in London, March 29th from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. It's free to attend. It's at the Best Western Lamplighter Inn. To talk about this, we are joined by Mary Lynn Stewart from March of Dimes. Thanks for your time today. Well, it's fantastic to be be able to talk about this great event. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, what's going to be happening on uh, March uh, 29th. No problem. It's, the event is called Opening Doors for Accessibility. Um, it's exciting. It's our fourth annual one that we've done. 
Um, it'll be taking place at the Best Western Lamplighter from 9 until 3.30. Um, and it's a free event. And it's for anybody that cares for someone that has a disability or if someone has a disability themselves or if they're an allied health professional. Um, there's going to be all kinds of neat things going on. So it's, it's, it's trying to really have conversations about the gaps that can happen between hospital to home when it's centered around accessibility for people with disabilities. A disability can uh, mean a lot of different things. Are there some uh, specific kinds of disabilities to help people with, or are there, the, regardless of what specific disability a person has, are there some, some commonalities uh, that can help everyone? There's commonalities that can help everybody. So just to say, because I, I totally agree with you, Doug, and what you're saying, there can be different types of disabilities. The focus on this is all physical disabilities. So that, that would be the only differentiator there is that it is on physical disabilities. Um, so some of the sessions that are coming up, we're going to be having Brenda Ryan talk about adaptive cooking. Um, we're going to be talking about adaptive travel, adaptive driving, which is kind of a unique one that's going on these days. Um, Marcia Dimes will be doing... Um, just some information for people to know what funding is available through our Home and Vehicle Modification Program, also our Assisted Device Program. Um, we've got, we're going to learn how to exercise with those great walking poles that people say around, see around. Um, we're going to be learning about trends in accessible housing for older Canadians, which is kind of a national perspective. So those are just some little teasers of some of the stuff that's going to be going on. I think events like this are so important because... If you know if you if you are new to a disability or something or in, in having trouble getting around or whatever the case might be, sometimes you're you're so focused on you know your care and what you need to do that you forget other parts about um, just how to live your life. And as it maybe it comes all at once, and it's a lot to think about, and you get worried about how you're going to get through your day. It's a lot for the person with the disability, but also for the family wanting to help their loved one who is living with this disability. Oh, it, it's totally that way. So when we do, we actually do these conferences across Canada, so they're meant to be like little teasers of information, um, because again, so often people don't have access to information, even though we all have access to websites, of course. Um, a couple other ones to, just to look at, because always the challenge so often with a disability is that it can be a very expensive thing to have a disability, and people can be very challenged by the resources that are available. Um, we've actually got a speaker talking about the goal and commitment to home modifications in Canada. Um, that's going to be presented by Gary Sharp from the Renovation um, Services, part of the Candies Home Builders Association, and also leveraging your home to fund accessibility. Um, and Home Equity Bank will be uh, presenting that. So, again, trying to give people little teasers of information. Our keynote is a, a local wonderful gentleman by the name of Mike Mulligan, who himself has a disability, but, boy, he's done some fabulous things with his life. And he's the owner of the Moving Forward um, Gym in London. So there's a lot of neat things for people, and there still is room for people to come. Um, we're we're going to be talking about getting to aging in place because that's really what's happening, right? People are ending up living at home. So how do you live your best life with your disability in the circumstances that you have? How many people do you expect to uh, come out for this? To come out, last year we had 175. So this year we're hoping for 200. Um, right now we're sitting around 100. So And there's a free lunch. People get a goodie bag. Um, and there'll be all kinds of vendors there of people that actually can help people. So the vendors are actually in the room. Um, so there's 
there's, there'll be access to lots of information and lots of chances to talk to people going through the same challenge that people may be going through themselves or their loved ones. What are some of the common questions you hear from people who are a bit worried about how they're just going to get through their day or people who are, who are worried about how they're going to help their loved ones just get through a regular day? Well, I, I think the bottom line is, like, what what type of equipment do I need? Do I need a walker? Do I need a raised toilet seat? Do I need um, a wheelchair? So it's, so what funding is available for those things? Where do I get them? I think is very common. I think a big thing that people want to know is what peer support groups are available, right? Like, if I've had a stroke. March of Dimes is a big push for our after-stroke program. So who do I talk to? Where do I go? So people, people are just looking for, it. like, whatever the disability is, how do I integrate that into my life? And a lot of the hospitals, which are wonderful, provide a lot of that service. But quite often, people get overwhelmed by too much information. So this is just little tidbits. It's meeting fellow caregivers, fellow allied health professionals, other people with disabilities. And because talking to someone that's been on the same walk as you sometimes can be so much easier than talking to just a hospital. So we're, we're excited because there's been some very unique conversations that happened at this event. That's, a, that's an important part. Um, you know, I, can, I, can, I can't imagine what it's like for a person who is going through life and then there's an abrupt life change and you had plans for things you wanted to do that maybe now you're not as able to do or they're more difficult to do. I could see how that could be upsetting, frustrating. Um, I don't want to say depressing because that's a a strong word, but in that realm. Um, But that doesn't mean just because, you know, there's been a change, that doesn't mean things end or things have to end. No, it doesn't. You know, there's, I think the whole point of what March of Dimes is trying to do with what we do as an organization and also with this event is to get people back into their community, right? And to make them feel like they're a vital part of that and part of their lives, that they're not just been put to the side because of their disability. Um, do things like adaptive cooking, like there's really neat things you can do. And even you can travel, right? You can drive. Like people can do, people can get back to their life. And I know that's easy to say, but in my family, there's been a lot of strokes, right? And I, I've watched um, my family members not having, you know, it's frightening, it's anxious, it's all those things. So we're trying to have create a community here where people can have access to information and find out that, hey, there may, tomorrow can be another day. It can be a better day for me. It's a great event. Uh, Marilyn Stewart, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. All right, Devin, thanks very much. Have a good day. That's Mary Lynn Stewart from March of Dimes of Canada. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. Devin Peacock in with you. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau is going to be setting the table for the 2019 budget on March 19th. So a couple days from now, it'll be the Liberals' last spending blueprint before the uh, federal election this fall. One that's likely to contain a number of quote-unquote goodies, which is a term I typically uh, don't like when we talk about this, but it keeps coming up with uh, my media colleagues. Uh, Goodies uh, for the taxpayers. Uh, that's also how uh, Pricewaterhouse uh, Coopers has uh, <laughs> described it. Oh, what can Canadians expect? You can expect something on housing affordability. You can expect something on uh, tax and benefit changes for seniors. You can ex- expect something on pharmacare and something on job training. I mentioned housing affordability to start because new poll came out on that yesterday. It was done by Zucasa. Uh, the poll found 82% of respondents agree that housing 
housing affordability is a major issue that's negatively impacting Canadians today and that a majority of respondents agree that housing affordability in Canada cannot be fixed with government policy measures alone. Penelope Graham is the managing editor at Zucasa. She joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Hello. What made you want to uh, look into uh, this, uh, looking at uh, housing affordability? Certainly a, um, an issue that's uh, becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue uh, by, the, by the month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Um, housing affordability really has been one of the hottest topics in recent years. And there's been growing pressure for the federal government to take action to ease some of that um, affordability challenges, and especially for the first-time homebuyer segment, who has really been the hardest hit um, by recent occurrences in the market. And this is especially a big point of focus right now, um, as we have the federal budget to be unveiled next week. And the federal finance minister, Bill Morneau, he's indicated that there's going to be something included for homebuyers in this budget, uh, but we don't yet know what form that's going to take. And various bodies from the real estate and mortgage industry, they've been making recommendations to the federal government about what they would like to see included in that budget, what they think would be the most effective to improve affordability. Uh, So from their perspective, reducing the national mortgage stress test is one of their biggest points of focus, as well as extending the mortgage amortizations to 30 years for the first-time buyer segment. Um, So we wanted to see whether these recommendations actually align with what home buyers at the market level feel would be effective for them. Uh, So we surveyed over a 1,000 Canadians uh, just on their sentiments around what they think would be effective, what measures they'd like to see uh, be introduced, and how they feel about the issue at large. And our findings were somewhat surprising. Um, So obviously the vast majority agreed that housing affordability is a major issue. Uh, 82% said that they agreed with that. Um, But just over half felt that anything the government may do to relieve this would actually be effective, and only 21% felt that any sort of progress would actually be made over the next five years at the government level. Uh, so we found that there was really quite a level of apathy among home buyers about what actually may be effective. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that uh, a lot of Canadians uh, seem to believe there's not a, a quick solution to the problem, which uh, they may be right, but uh, I, 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 did, I did get that same sense as you did from this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what was also surprising was the measures that they felt would actually help them get into the market differed from what was being suggested at the, the industry level. Um, you know, there's been so much focus about reducing this mortgage stress test. Um, but our findings show that only 50 per- 57% of Canadians even knew what the stress test was to begin with. And of that group, only half agree that that would actually help um, reduce uh, affordability measures for them. Um, so another measure that's been called for was extending the amortization uh, to 30 years for the first-time homebuyer segment. Um, so currently, if you're paying less than 20% down on your home purchase, uh, you have only 25 years to pay your mortgage back in full. Um, so this measure would look at extending that back to 30 years um, in 2012, they actually took the measure to reduce it to 25 years as, a, as part of reducing risky um, borrowing uh, criteria in Canada. 
So this would be reinstating that original timeline. Um, this would be effective in reducing monthly mortgage payments, which in turn would help with that qualifying uh, criteria for the mortgage stress test. Um, but out of the people that we surveyed, only 10% felt that this would actually help. Uh, so another bit of a disconnect there. Um, another thing that we asked was whether or not they felt that uh, ex- extending the amount they could take out of RSPs for the home buyers plan uh, would be helpful, and only 8% agreed with that sentiment. So those were areas where um, there's been a lot of focus at the industry level, but not so much reflected at the home buyer level. Uh, you know, a, a lot of it's pretty technical, and I wonder how much people think about, you know, the ins and outs of buying a house other than, you know, I want to buy a house or I'd like to be able to afford to buy a house. And some of the technical stuff people traditionally don't think about. And so, you know, I don't blame for Canadians for maybe being uh, differing a little bit from some of the industry uh, professionals, just because a lot of this stuff can be difficult to wrap your head around. Yeah, absolutely. And um, actually, the majority of um, the respondents said that what they felt would be most effective for them actually came down to cash in pocket. So 28% said that the measure they'd most like to see introduced was an expansion of the first-time home buyer's tax credit. So right now, if you're a first-time buyer, you and your spouse are buying a home for the first time in Canada, you can get $750 back if you claim it on your taxes. So people are most in favor of seeing that amount expand. Um, and that's not a huge point of focus right now at the industry level. Uh, so we thought that that was all actually quite telling, that people are, are most focused on what kind of cash, what tangible uh, return can I see from the government that's going to help me out. Housing affordability isn't traditionally, you know, a big issue in Canadian politics. So the fact that this poll's being done and we're talking about this, I think, indicates, as we were talking before, that this whole uh, this whole topic is changing and the way people are viewing this is changing. And it's probably not going to be, uh, in terms of just the issue, regardless of whether something happens or not, changing for a while just because we're seeing how difficult it is for a lot of people just to enter the market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the borrowing environment has changed over the past few years, um, both with this mortgage stress test, but also because interest rates have been rising. The Bank of Canada has been hiking rates. Um, but it really is a multifaceted issue, and the needs of buyers change from market to market. So you've got, you know, the biggest markets like Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, one of the main issues there is that we've seen skyrocketing, like, house appreciation over the past five years, and wages have not caught up with that. Um, So you've got situations like in Vancouver where the average single-family home, um, you're looking at over a million dollars and close to that in Toronto as well. So there's just such a gap between incomes uh, and what people actually are qualifying for in their mortgages. And then that's just being compounded upon because of the mortgage stress test in the rising interest rate environment. Um, You know, so I think it's going to take a mix of measures it's certainly a point of focus that the government needs to look at right now, um, but it's it's certainly not a catch-all solution. Uh, more needs to happen across the board, um, and there's there's distinct needs in each market. Penelope, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Penelope Graham, Managing Editor at Zucasa. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
My thanks to Sidra Ahmad, to Dr. Ian Shulman, to Howard Levitt, to Sylvain Charlebois, to Steve Hillier, Mary Lynn Stewart, and Penelope Graham for coming on today's show. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is from KRCR7 in Redding, California. A reporter was going live during the news, and right as their hit started, they immediately lost their train of thought. This happens to us all in media at some point. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you on Monday at 1. Good evening, Mike and Tamara. So, um, so, um, sorry, um,